0: When and where do African-American religions begin? Sylvester Johnson, Associate Professor of African-American Studies and Religious Studies at Northwestern University, disrupts the traditional temporal and geographical boundaries in the academic study of black religion in the Americas in his new book, African-American Religions 1500-2000, to Colonialism, Democracy, and Freedom. Johnson places the productive forces in African-American religion, at the intersection of empire and colonialism, and within the constructs of notions of democratic freedom. His study requires this analytical reformulation in order to examine how black religious history unfolds within changing social and political contexts over the long durée. In our conversation, we discussed Afro European commercialism, European views of indigenous African religious practices, black Christianization in the Americas, violent state regulation, 19th century political theologies, black settler colonialism and the creation of Liberia, Garveyism, African American Muslims, anti-colonial movements, the racialization of religion, FBI surveillance and repression of black religious movements, the connection between the history of African American religions and Muslim Americans after 9-11, and interdisciplinarity. I'm one of your co-hosts for the channel, Christian Peterson. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Here's my conversation with Sylvester Johnson. Welcome, Sylvester. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. How are you? Thanks.
1: Doing great. Uh, thanks for the invitation.
0: Now, this book is really uh, its an outstanding book. It's one of the best I've read in a long time, African American Religions, 1500 to 2000, Colonialism, Democracy, and Freedom. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it, uh, and there is so much to talk about. So let's dive right in. Uh, We usually uh, begin our conversations with a little bit about uh, you as an author and what brought you to the study of religion. So can you give us a little background on uh, perhaps your training or particular moments or uh, mentors that have been influential in either uh, the way you approach the study of religion or the topics that you address?
1: Absolutely. Sure. i I have to say two people come to mind when I think about how I came to the study of religion, and they were my undergraduate professors, mentors, Ronald Leiberg and Stephen Angel. Uh, And so I was a chemistry major in college, but I took a number of humanities courses because of those fabulous distribution requirements. And I also, I did have an inclination toward an interest in religion, but didn't really understand studying religion. And I took a undergraduate course in religion that really not just piqued my interest, it, it rocked my world. It introduced me to the sociality of religion. It made me see that things that I took for granted actually had lots of history, that they were formed in particular ways, and particularly in the linkage of things like religion with slavery or religion with gender and sexuality or religion with empire. And so... Uh, I really started there, and I I didn't change my major. I continued to study chemistry, but I did a minor in religion, and I decided I wanted to go to graduate school to study religion. I ended up studying at Union Theological Seminary with Jim Cohn, who is well-known for his work on religion and race, uh, particularly black theology. And I ended up writing a dissertation looking at the Noah legend, and the way that legend worked as part of the history of Christianizing blacks in the U.S. That book, well, that dissertation became a book. It became a book called The Myth of Ham in 19th century American Christianity. And that book was really engaged with the way religious hatred was at work in convincing blacks that they should convert to Christianity. That was not a natural thing. That had to to be formulated into a persuasive frame. And uh, from there, I mean, this book is very different. It's concerned about empires. It has some linkage to things I had written about earlier, but it it's also engaged with some new questions, and it hints toward uh, some ongoing projects and future ones, particularly in its attention toward national security paradigms. Uh, but that's how I started out, and I still maintain interest in science but i have always worked within the context of the humanities and studying religion and race and slavery and colonialism the way those things are intersecting how they link together has really been at the center of my research
0: yeah and that comes through in this book where there's there's lots of intersecting pieces that you uh you disentangle in in very uh, dynamic and interesting ways um I want to start with uh, this idea of African-American religion or black religion, which you uh, call it in a couple of places. So if, for this book, what is the category of African-American religion that you're talking about in the sense of analytical domain? How would you characterize uh, how this category has been approached in the past by scholars of religion? And how, how do you suggest we shift our interpretive methods moving forward as you do in this book?
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question. So I use the term African-American religions broadly to refer to religions among people who have been racialized as black in the Americas, not just the United States. And I do that in a way that's really inspired by, as I mentioned at the beginning of this book, by scholars such as Charles Long and Albert Rabateau, I would like to say that I came up with the idea of grounding the history of Afro-American religions in the emergence of Afro-European relations, particularly Afro-Iberian relations in the 15th century. But that was not my idea. Albert Rabateau did that (laughs) in the 1970s. We'll give
0: you credit for now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't take that from him. And so uh, I, I think maybe for some readers, they, they may see the title African-American Religions, and then they see the periodization, 1500 to 2000. And, and even that is cheating a little bit because the book starts in the 1400s, actually. But 1500 is a nice round number. that They, they may think that's kind of odd if they associate African-American with the United States. And they, of course, there's no such thing as the United States in the 1500s. Uh, so i could point to many different examples of this as i said rabbit really does this with black religion no, but you could look at uh, someone like Sidney allstrom's uh, religious history of the american people which he starts in europe in the in the 1500s to talk about the american to talk about what is really is the united states so uh, these are basically transnational ways of understanding the actual history of how these categories emerge and so if you do want to talk about the united states of course that that is already being shaped by things that started earlier than the 1770s, etc. But I, I use the category of African American religions to refer to broadly to religion among people who've been racialized as black in the Americas, not just the U.S. And, and I understand that to be already a diasporic, transnational type of formation. And so uh, that's that's not how many authors use the category, but it is how some have used it. And, and so that's the kind of work that it's doing in this
0: time. So some key categories in your study are empire and colonialism. And I, I think you've done so much that people that are working in other subfields or subthemes within the study of religion are really going to benefit from. So can you talk a little bit about how you understand these processes of empire and colonialism and – what does thinking about African-American religion within the context of colonialism and imperialism provide us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this book began for me uh, with an effort to give an account of black religion, which as I do in the book, I, I use inter- interchangeably with the term African-American religions, although I think black religion is bigger than the Americas and the way I scripted that. Uh, and, and as I try to tell a story I'm concerned about more than the Americans as well but at the center is this question <clears throat> what does the history of African American religions do have to do with colonialism and colonialism has been written about uh, in many ways as something that is not really well, let me let me put that it's not really relevant to African American religions it works better the other way. African-American religions has most frequently been written about as something that is about slavery and not colonialism. That the people who have come to be called black Americans or African-Americans, particularly, but not, not only in the United States, but especially in the United States, are not really colonized. They're just descendants of people who've been enslaved. And to the degree that uh, different historical actors have referred to colonialism as being relevant to interpreting the history, of the united states beyond was called the colonial period so after the formation of the united states and particularly in relationship to to black americans that's been treated often most frequently as either delusional or as uh, analytically flawed and as uh, more of a misconception And, of course, uh, there's also the issue of of U.S. exceptionalism, or American exceptionalism, which treats the United States as the uh, really sacred, pristine, uh, innocent artifice or um, architect of freedom, of democracy, of equality, that Structures those categories in a way that is fundamentally at odds with and in distinction to things such as slavery, brutality, racism, apartheid, etc. <clears throat> and so there is this larger question that I wanted to address of what the relationship is. Is there one? I, I think, of course, absolutely. And and what is the nature of it? That is also in conversation with the things in that subtitle. Right? So, colonialism, democracy, and freedom. And what I wanted to do is to not dismiss, but to explain the linkage between things that are usually treated as being opposites, uh, when in fact they are not. And especially things such as freedom and slavery, democracy and colonialism. As, as if those are opposite pairings, and they're not pairings. As I try to argue in the book, the relationship among those things is, is genealogical and not contradictory, uh, that freedom and democracy are actually products of colonialism, that the kind of aspirations toward freedom and a, a pristine reach for an unfettered individual agency, uh, that that very exercise and its institutionalized formations are products of things such as settler colonialism and genocide and corporatism. And and so these are relationships that are profoundly counterintuitive. Uh, They are immensely central to the history of the United States and its ongoing history. So I talk about the U.S. very much as an empire, not only in its distant past, but also in its present. And what I try to explain is that the the formations of religion that have come to be known as African-American religion, particularly in the way that that those formations operate under the sign of freedom, uh, that those formations are very much products of colonialism, and that it, it is not only artificial, it's it's really it's fallacious to talk about the history of African-Americans outside of colonialism as if it's somehow extraneous and that slavery itself is really not understood properly if it is not treated as something that is actually emerging and functioning within the larger superstructure of empire. So that's what the book aims to do, and it, it does that by looking at multiple periods, and it makes a sustained argument about the relationship among those things. Uh, it's, so it's a book that that tries to touch down in different places, different regions geographically, different time periods across roughly five centuries uh, in order to demonstrate something that I, I think is not easy to see within a small time period I've just written about a 25 year period or 50 year period I don't think that's ample for giving that demonstration and so there's a larger trajectory that I think is very important
0: yeah and I think you're 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 very successful overall here and uh, in terms of the structure of the book for for listeners' sake um, you do this through three parts and in the first part you look at, networks of religion and empire in the Atlantic world um, and one example or piece of this is uh, Afro-European commercialism uh, between West Af- West Central Africa and European powers. Could you talk a little bit about what role commerce played in religious exchange? Um, what transformations in Atlantic religion emerge at the intersection of intersections of market formations and trade networks and how we should account for African involvement in empire?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So the commercialism is front and center in the early part of the book. It's one way that I try to demonstrate that the things that are called religion are very much due to things that are not categorized as religion. And I guess, in the, by way of shorthand, the best analogy that comes to mind is the way scholars typically study things like early Judaism and early Christianity. is really a history of empires. And you look at the, uh, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire and the uh, Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the <laughs> Empire, the Roman Empire. And it's a history of empires. And empires are not religion. So their states, their state practices. I treat colonialism and empire in this book, colonialism, as the activity of empires. And an empire is something that states do. So that's how I handle it as a critical category. But if, some, if you think of something like the Messiah concept, which is a religious concept, it's, it's very much an empire concept. And it emerges because of colonialism. And it's a response to that. And, and you're never going to make sense of uh, Jewish messianism, early Christianity, if you're not paying attention to the colonialism that is at work, that is uh, challenging and undermining sovereignty, and the will that different populations have held toward uh, creating self-determination, and uh, the specter of empire, and not just the specter, the actual architecture of empire, that undergirds not just the social world of early Christianity, but actually it's political theology it's it's all empire theology all the concepts about armies and salvation and monarchs it's actually empire language right? so it becomes important to pay attention to these secular types of things in order to make sense of what's happening with religion and and so that's what i'm trying to do in the 16th and 17th centuries with looking at the emergence of commercialism commercialism europeans did not go to africa because they hated Africans, because they were racist and hated black people. They went there because they were already doing empire against Muslims, and because they wanted to make money, because particularly they wanted to trade. And African states, did they willfully and gladly and voluntarily entered into diplomatic commercial relations, first with the Portuguese, and then with a number of other European states, not because they were forced to, Uh, but because they wanted to make money. And trade is what people do, and trade is something that people have done for thousands of years. This is not a new thing. So I wanted to actually take that seriously and to show that the marketplace, uh, not, not metaphorically of religion, but literally the marketplace of commodities was actually foundational for the emergence of these Atlantic exchanges. And this is something that Charles Long has demonstrated beautifully in his invocations and throughout uh, a number of his different words. And so uh, it's, I've been inspired by him to really take that seriously. So that's why it's there. And it's why the, the things that get called Atlantic religion are are beginning to, be, to emerge in the way of understanding the history of Atlantic empires. Uh, it's because of the comers. That's what people want to do. And then the, the role of African states. So the I've gotten several responses from different readers about uh, the treatment that I give of slavery, especially. And what I try to demonstrate in the book is that slavery, of course, was part of the commercialism, is that the Congo Empire particularly was an empire as, as an African empire was actually more powerful. And the Portuguese Empire the Congo state adopted Christianity' as its official religion voluntarily not because Europeans forced them to but because they were interested in it and this is where they wanted to do this and and it created all kinds of problems down the road uh, but other than the change of fact that they were they were willing actors they understood themselves be entering into voluntary commercial diplomatic relations with the Portuguese so they could make profit. And they did profit from it. And and the book shows clearly that uh, Europeans were, were quite avaricious in their efforts to continually, they tried to dominate these African policies and were unsuccessful at first. Centuries later, they did. But it doesn't start off as these militarily more powerful Europeans who are dominating Africans. It starts off as militarily more powerful African states who want to trade with Europeans. And who were able to successfully defend their free market practices against European efforts to force them into a relationship of domination at first. And, and later, it, things begin to break down terribly. But at first, this is very voluntary. Slavery was already part of the political economy and the, the economic economy of these African states, as it was also of European states. So slavery was not new. No one was introducing slavery in these commercial exchanges. Slavery was changing because of the emergence of capitalist practices and the emergence of uh, a European inspired form of racial governance, but it was still already there. And so I try to give attention to that that complexity and to that nuance in the account. And so some of the responses that I've gotten have pointed to that as being uh, something that readers were not expecting. We're expecting more of a, a less complicated narrative where slavery is really largely due to Europeans introducing something into uh, a more pristine African environment. And what I try to show is that, no, it was already there. And there are many Africans who not only didn't have a problem with the slavery, they, they're trading human beings who've been abducted, kidnapped into this trade because they want to make money. And that doesn't mean that the Europeans weren't, weren't guilty of. The racism and all of the efforts that went on in the greed but it's also important to understand that these were voluntary arrangements among very powerful african states and very powerful european states and and the cost of that in human terms and the bodies of children and women and men was profound and so that that begins to shape things like the religious formation so how does that affect religion and there there are many ways to try to trot this out but uh, in a broad stroke, you know, one big difference then is that the the Christian theological imagination becomes part of indigenous African religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, it, it creates uh, antagonism toward African religions because they are African religions. That was a new element. And the missionary religion component that Christianity introduced permanently altered the social landscape uh, because it was it was thriving on a type of religious hatred and it also incorporated certain attitudes toward material objects so you get the the christian theological traditions about uh, what what's called witchcraft and and everything is called witchcraft in the history of christianity but the basic attitude that that there's something wrong with the way people relate to material objects material entities that, that is a sign of a diabolical, devil-inspired, Satan-inspired formation. That becomes part of the social dynamic, and it happens within the Congo Kingdom, and it happens throughout West African societies. And, and it continues to be uh, a formation that always marks the, if if you'll allow me, the, the wreckage of missionary Christianity throughout
0: the history of African religions. Now, moving forward a little in the book, just for the sake of time, um, you uh, once you get to the Americas proper, we start to see colonial forms of Christian governance uh, that are still structured by Atlantic Empire. So what what political structures and architectures of governance shaped black religion in the Americas And how did the intersection of empire and religion structure these theological formations of black Christianization?
1: So that's a a question that takes us into the heart of the relationship between religion and empire. There are two things I'll quickly point to. One is the role of corporatism, and the other is the role of what I call black settler colonialism, or black Christian settler colonialism. So the corporatism is one way – in that we see a counterintuitive relationship between democracy and colonialism colonialism can easily be read as uh, destroying freedom <laughs> what i what i try to show is these things are not opposites and so here's one way I, I write about the virginia company among many companies that was a product of these atlantic histories that because it was a company was chartered given a charter by the british crown in order to govern to do statecraft. And typically, only the monarch and the monarchy, uh, nobility, can actually participate in governing. But outside of the metropole, in the colonial uh, hinterland, so to speak, in the, uh, the periphery, I should say, corporations were allowed to do things that today we associate with territorial states that were actually quite new in the scale of their assemblage. So, for example, monarchs did not typically maintain large standing armies. They simply hired private mercenaries whenever they went to war. And they had, they had a small security guard. But it would be very expensive to maintain a standing ar- army, as any military establishment today knows. Your personnel costs are going to be exorbitant. You have to feed and clothe them, etc. But if you just outsource it, then it works. So it's actually the corporations such as the English East India Company, that begin to maintain standing armies uh, because they, they were already private and they were not going to go and rely on other companies or other warlords for their standing army. and they were pretty much always by the because they're trying to expand their territorial control, etc. So they get to govern, they meant currency, And because these people who get to govern are not nobility, they're they're investors. They're people who have the private capital to venture in the language of early English to to put at risk their capital in hopes of making some gain. That's what gives them the right to govern is their wealth, not their blood, not their proximity to the crown. That was very different. And the Virginia company got to do that. Uh, so one of many. So they do this in North America, and it becomes such a uh, vociferous and such an inspiring model that that model is copied by all of the other British colonies. What we call the Virginia Ber- Burgesses was really the corporate officers who were the largest plantation owners in Virginia who were able To do what we call governing. They were able to vote, but they were voting as corporate officers in the way that today shareholders are able to vote because they own ownership in the company. That's actually a very important element in the origin of what we think of as the American, and not just American, but the Atlantic tradition of freedom, of self-government, And had the crown had foresight, they would never have allowed these private corporations to do this because they couldn't, they couldn't foresee the American revolution, but they, they were just given the companies the right to act as states so that the crown could get more wealth. It was way you use private venture capital and the crown doesn't have to afford all the money for all this venturing that's going on. It made it economically feasible to do empire, but that actually planted the seeds for what eventually emerges as a doctrine of popular sovereignty you know, for the first time in human history. People begin to believe that monarchs should not be able to govern. I mean, that's really a crazy idea. Why shouldn't monarchs be able to? They've been doing it for thousands of years. What's the problem now? But it was actually the exercise of Atlantic empire that created a situation where the most efficient way to do empire was to use private capital. And in order to put that private capital work, you had to let corporations do what we call statecraft. That's what happened. And it created a very important tradition. So I think that's one way that, that it's here. And it's also the theological st- structure of Christian sovereignty. That the Christian deity, the Christian divine sovereign, has given Christians the right to rule the world. The whole world. All of the earth is the Christian lords, the Christian sovereigns. And that sovereign entrusts the right to govern that world to the subjects of the Christian divine sovereign, that is to to Christian princes and to kings and queens. So that just filters down that, that juridical political structure of Christianity, of Christian governance was the, the rationality that enabled these Christian empires to actually take lands and to extend their rule and to the Americas, which were already governed by, Native American sovereign entities. The black settler Christian colonialism is another element that I talk about in the book, in the, the second part. And it looks at the emergence of Liberia as a settler colony, as a settler state, but as a black Christian settler state. The Christianity is actually central to how Liberia emerges. It wasn't supposed to be. So Liberia began as a an experiment in removing voluntarily free blacks from the United States so that they could formally the, the objective had to be to help in slave trading in West Africa, even though the United States was a slave-holding state. As as Britain is also holding slaves in its colonies, but it also participates in suppressing the slave trade in West Africa. It's supposed to be secular. As it turns out, however, it gets executed, that is, the Liberia Project, because of black Christian missionaries who want to voluntarily go to Africa to convert what they call the heathens to Christianity. And so although Liberia was supposed to be a secular project, it actually emerges and gets executed as a Christian missionary project. That's how it happens. And it ends up being a an apartheid state. That's for the descendants of the black Christian settlers that is fundamentally Set in opposition against the indigenous peoples of West Africa, and so this this is a not so commonly told story in the way that I try to to narrate it. Uh, but I do that because I'm trying to show throughout the significance of Christianity in the exercise of colonial rule, in setting up a rule over people who are subject to the power of a state to which they are denied membership in its political body in its body politic. And, and that's what happens with Liberia, with devastating consequences for the next century and a half afterwards. Uh, so that, that's another specific way in which I try to demonstrate how religion and empire are actually at work together, how they're intersecting, and how the history of religion cannot be told in its most foundational elements without taking seriously the role that empire has played.
0: Now um, in the third part of the book, uh, you you move on to black anti-colonial religious movements uh, in relation to US national security efforts Um, and you look at a a couple different examples. The the first example I guess sets the stage so to speak in the sense that uh, it's one of the earliest. You look at Garveyism and the Universal Negro Improvement Association. So can you tell us what this movement was all about, and then what effects do you see it having on African-American religions after?
1: Absolutely. The Garvey movement was hands down the largest uh, black mass movement to occur in history. It's less written about, uh, particularly than things such as the civil rights movement, but there's no question among scholars. It was the largest. It was the most momentous and it continued to have a very foundational influence on the nature of black liberationist movements uh, decades following. It was especially distinctive because the Garvey movement was not merely concerned about what people at the time called race prejudice or color prejudice. It was the terminology that we would say, we would today call racism. They were focused on colonialism. And, and the Garvey movement really, in a way, crystallized some of the early movements that I write about in that book from the 19th century. It crystallized those into a critique of colonialism by focusing singularly on the fact that the ability to self-govern was the make or break crux in this struggle over what people were referring to as color prejudice, that, that racism was very much about empire. It was about colonialism. The Garvin movement was is also often read as a contradiction by scholars, because in promoting an anti-colonial movement, the UNIA was actually promoting empire, uh, specifically by saying that what was essential was creating something like a United States of Africa that would be an empire so that it could check and counterbalance the power of European colonialism, of the Western empires that were controlling uh, much of the world's resources and controlling its populations through a colonial style of governance. In other words, the Garvey movement was saying that if you want freedom, you're going to have to have a black empire. So it really embodies the ties between freedom and empire, that I try to, to demonstrate iteratively in other places of the book to show that what emerges as a tradition of freedom, of the focus on individual rights, on the sacrality of liberty, is not in opposition to slavery. It's not in opposition to colonialism. It's actually in a genealogical relationship with those things. And, and so I refer to authors such as Orlando Patterson and Sidiya Hartman, scenes of subjection who've also, in different ways, tried to show this relationship. I think the Garvey movement really embodies that in a very profound way. The Garvey movement was also heavily surveilled and targeted as an enemy racial formation, as an enemy racial threat by the United States government, uh, particularly the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And so it came under FBI surveillance and repression, and the FBI sought to, to counter the movement and saw it as, as a threat to the interest of the United States along with a number of others. The Garvin movement also embodied a very explicit uh, commitment to religion. And it was not promoting a particular sect of religion, although it, it could be called um, certainly very Abrahamic in lots of its constituency. There was many Christians and Black Jews and Muslims. Who were explicitly part of it. But what was significant about its religious element was that <clears throat> it, it really focused on uh, what some scholars have called the black gods collectively. Eisenfeld uses this term, Arthur Fawcett used this term in referring to some of these early black movements of the religious movements of the early 20th century. But but understanding the divine as, uh, as black in order to align the theology with some of these liberationist paradigms movements. So all of those different elements uh, the anti-colonialism, what seems to be on the surface a contradictory, but which is actually a genealogical understanding of the relationship between freedom and empire, uh, the attention to a racially specific architecture of theology, all of those become important elements in, in my effort to try to frame a way of explaining some of these foundational movements that emerged in the 20th century and particularly under the sign of national security under that lens.
0: Now, uh, this, this continues, uh, as we move on in history, as liberation theologies and black radical politics, uh, becomes, uh, under greater and greater, uh, state intervention and surveillance. Um, can, can you talk about uh, the types of liberationists and anti-colonial paradigms uh, that were emerging during the civil rights and black power movements and how the government – how governmental institutions like the FBI and the department classified and then responded to these uh, movements during this time?
1: Sure. So I, I focus on the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and I also look at the more science temple. Of America, so this was an African American Muslim community, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is well known for being the the primary architect behind uh, the the integrationist uh, phase of of what we easily call the Civil Rights Movement. And I focus on those because they they both were targeted as enemy uh, groups as racial threats by the FBI under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover, they were both heavily repressed and were subjected to criminalization. So even though they were exercising things like well, what were supposed to be constitutionally protected free speech and free assembly, uh, they, they were actually victims of what's called counterintelligence operations. So these, these are military paradigms that target people as a political threat, whether or not they commit crimes. The issue is not so much that these are criminals per se, but that their vision of things can be identified as a threat to the interest of the United States, as interpreted and defined by the national security community. So both of those organizations are are at work, and the Science Temple especially promoted an anti-colonial theology. They emphasize an ethnic heritage for Blacks. And they they criticized openly racism as a, a function of the U.S. state of the government. And they called for social, they called for racial equality. Uh, that was actually seen as being dangerous by the FBI, according to the FBI's own account at that time. And the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, for all of the, the glamour and appeal of Keynes and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference today, It's important to keep in mind that during the 50s and the 60s that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was classified by the FBI as a black extremist group, as a as actually a hate group and as the most important threat to the internal security of the United States. It was seen as the helm For what the FBI termed the Negro Rebellion, and that language was used to refer to the various black political movements. And there are also things like the Black Black Panther Party, uh, the Black Consciousness Movement as a larger phenomenon, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, the the older organization, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the Congress of Racial Equality of the Third World Women's Alliance. So there were were many of these organizations that were focusing on colonialism, that were targeting apartheid, uh, that were trying to change the popular attitudes in the United States, especially among whites, toward apartheid and toward what were legal forms of racism, of discrimination. Uh, certainly by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling of 1896, segregation was constitutionally protected and, and was not challenged. That wasn't reversed since 1954. So I look at those groups and I also talk about the, the linkages among some of those activists who were part of the Black Panther Party. So Angela Davis or the, the Black Power Movement broadly. So Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Carmichael, and the support of the cause of the Vietnamese who were trying to end colonialism, and were and ended up in a war against France and the United States, or Cuba's efforts to end the dictatorship that the United States has set up there under the rule of Valencia Batista in the 1950s, and their efforts to try to create self-determination. And in looking at those movements, I try to show how the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference particularly became legible under uh, the scrutiny of national security entities such as the FBI. And I, I focus on the FBI, but also the State Department and the CIA. Uh, it became legible as as a threat. And the, the term black militant was used and then by the 70s terrorists, with the same tenor that terrorists has today. That this is someone who doesn't have the right to have rights. This is something that's un-American and needs to be destroyed. That that was actually part of the history of the religion. And I also try to demonstrate that there was a fight over the public meaning of Christianity. So in my writing about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, one of the things that I try to make visible is that the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference <laughs> was in a fight against uh, fundamentalist evangelicalism that was actually part of some of the black churches that were interfacing with the movement. And that at one point, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference ends up supporting the creation of a brand new denomination, the Progressive National Baptist Convention, because fundamentalism was part of the, the legacy denomination that was the largest one at that time among blacks, the National Baptist Convention. And it, it made it almost impossible to execute that civil rights movement. So they actually had to create another one, another denomination. But that was that was part of it. And what happens on the other side is really a victory by that fundamentalist evangelicalism that was very much articulating a response to communism as something that was un-American, even though communism had already been part of the history of the United States. It had been part of labor movements, but it was branded as un-American. It's still seen by many people here, even in the 21st century, as being something that's alien to the United States. That, uh, that foreigners imported in as a, as a way of trying to take over the United States. And that this anti-colonialism that was seen and the anti-racism that was uh, being manifested in these movements was a product that all of those things were treated as threats. And, and so the, the civil rights movement, which was very much, not reductively, but in large measure, a religious rebellion, as Barbara Savage has, has rightly and that was led by an ex- explicitly religious organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That 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 movement and that history was about colonialism. It was it was about who was going to control what regions. It was about of the world. It was about what kind of of, of incentives were going to exist for the United States to either support or to decimate democratic movements around the world, and unfortunately, the United States opted, opted to destroy these democratic movements because they were a threat to how the United States defined its military interests and economic interests, that, that that's actually the civil rights movement. It's, it's not purely a domestic kind of formation. It's already a transnational formation. And in, in one way, one could say that the national security community was, was wrong for the right reasons. Uh, that they they were right to recognize that there were linkages between these domestic groups and the third world, for example. But it wasn't that the third world was trying to overthrow the United States, is that colonialism was a global problem and that it was already recognized by many of these black activists as being part of the history. So in some ways, also, my attention to colonialism as a veridical category of analysis, is a way of trying to recognize the the insights of many of these activists who were saying that, that racism is not a, about just feelings and prejudice. It's actually about how people are governed. It's about colonialism. And that colonialism is something that happens all over the world, including within the United States. And, and so there's also a, some attention. I try to open the book with uh, attention toward indigenous movements uh, that the the first colonies formerly held by the U.S. government are actually Native American polities. That <laughs> that's foundational, and and that those polities as colonies, formal colonies, still exist today. That we really need to be very attentive to. Why colonialism? Why the language of empire is not just appropriate to talk about how the United States exercises state power? It's actually urgent.
0: And the the last chapter, you you bring this history into kind of a different realm in very interesting ways. And uh, you know, like uh, these groups you've just been talking about, there was this kind of continued surveillance of. Uh, African-American Muslim communities, especially the Nation of Islam, but also the more science temple that you mentioned earlier. Um, you talk about this in relation to the, relate, the racialization of Islam and, and patterns of governance that we see. So what, what parallels do we find in the relationship between African-American anti-colonial religions um, and the racialization of Islam in our kind of contemporary moment, so to speak.
1: Yeah, this is a, it's a great question. It's a, I think it's a sad and troubling question because I, as I've tried to argue in the book, this, the turn to racializing Islam has been such a, a destructive and devastating turn. Uh, so what, what do I mean by racializing first? And I'll say what I think the parallel is. <clears throat> so the by racialization, I, I mean to try to communicate more than what the term uh, what the term uh, Islamophobia often has in its legibility that Islamophobia is used by authors to refer to things beyond sometimes beyond the legibility of that term uh, so obviously if you take that literally it's fear of Muslims. And most scholars who are writing about Islamophobia know that this is not just about being afraid. It's about power. <laughs> it's about political interests. Uh, but I but I use the term racialization as, as some other scholars have as well to talk about what race actually is. And I draw on a number of scholars work, like, uh, Barnard Hesse's work. I look at um, the, the studies of racial state as well to try to explain this. But uh, what i mean is governing people in a way that excludes them from belonging to the political body they're subject to the power state but they're not able to to have a pristine relationship with the political community but the body politic of that state on a perpetual basis it doesn't matter how long they've been there it doesn't matter how long their ancestors have been there they they are treated as perpetual outsiders and that, that can take that can take on um, the semblance of a rationality through reference to all kinds of things, to skin color, hair texture, to language, to religion, to the shape of the skull, I mean, you name it. The history of race has been a history of using all kinds of things, from climate, geography, to body type, to capacity for self-governance, has used all kinds of things in order to rationalize that racial project, but that the racial project fundamentally... Has been about how people get governed. Islam has been defined by the national security community. It's been and by defined, I mean it's been treated, it's been criminalized, it's been surveilled, it's been named as a threat to national security in ways that that purport its incommensurability with Americanness. That it, it can't be part of what America is. It's already a threat to it. So that's why I'm using that language of racialization. And I think that's precisely what's happened. And I don't think that racialization is new. I think that the the long durée, the long history of the genealogies of racism that have emerged through Christendom have for a long time been identifying uh, what might be regarded as religions in a very strict provincial sense as enemy populations, Jews and Muslims particularly. And there's much more scholarship on, on Jews being targeted. Uh, there's, there's not as much on Islam, but that has always been part of the history of enmity in Christendom. So that's what I mean. What are the parallels? Uh, so what I try to explain in the book is that if one looks at the 20th century history of the FBI engaging with African-American Muslims, that one will, will see not just the parallel to the racialization of Islam, but that one actually sees that this is the history of the racialization of Islam. And it's a it's a subtle point that is, is not easy to discern. And it's not easy to discern because most of us are used to thinking about race, about thinking about bodies. And and so we're we're usually made to feel that, that race is really about. People having different kind of bodies, or the meanings that get generated about people, different kind of bodies, and what I try to show uh, is that many different things have been used to rationalize race, but the race is not meanings. And as Barnard Hesse has, has I think, eloquently demonstrated in his analysis of this, that it's, it's not about discourse. That is actually how people are governed, and. And so if we can take seriously how race has done its work, and we take seriously the long history of relations of the politics between the West and the Muslim as that has been treated, then what we understand in looking at black people who were Muslims is that the in the United States throughout the twentieth century is that the racialization of Islam is already happening with black people. It's it's difficult to discern because one is tempted to say, well, well, they're black. And so the racialization is happening with their blackness, not with their Muslimness. And so you had black people who were Muslims. And we know that Muslims were were typically prevented from immigrating to the United States because of the immigration restrictions of the quota system that was in place until 1965. The Hart-Celler Act would lift those quotas and you would get far more immigrants who are coming to the United States from predominantly Muslim countries and from from around the world, but including predominantly Muslim countries. But for most of the history of the United States up until 1965, the majority of the United States Muslims were black people. So it's easy to say that's not about racializing Islam. It's just that these people were black. And so the FBI is after them because they're black. But that's not what the history of the FBI actually shows. What it shows is that it was not just their their racial blackness. It's that it was their Muslimness that was also read as a type of racial threat. And it was racialized, that is, their Muslimness was racialized because it was treated as a type of nature that was atavistic, that was, so they don't really have to think about what they're doing. They can just feed into what the FBI training manuals more recently have called the Arab mind or something like that. And and that it was treated as something that could not be part of the US, it was it was treated as something that had to be managed through paradigms of warfare. So going back to the issue of did you commit a crime? Well, probably not, but that's not the that's not the issue with national security. When you are a an enemy of the state, It doesn't matter so much whether you've committed crimes. The issue is, does your vision of society comport with the interest of this state? And if it's interpreted as a threat, if it's interpreted as a contravention, then we will make war with you. We will try to disrupt you. We will try to destroy your life. And and so that, I think, is it's it goes beyond being a parallel is what I try to argue in that section and it is actually the early history of racializing Islam and what we're seeing more recently is just the later history of the racialization of Islam. So it's it's a terrific question because it's it's um it's a difficult point to discern. It was difficult for me to discern, but I but I think that's actually what has happened uh, over the decades of the FBI's engagement with Muslims.
0: Yeah, I, I- as an Islamicist, this chapter really uh, was was striking for, for me how important this, this history is and, and what a good job you do in laying out uh, this trajectory in the chapter. I hope other people will read it. And just to kind of push you a little bit more here, um, not in terms so much of the subject matter or the data, so to speak, but in terms of uh, who you're speaking to and the type of work we do as scholars of religion um, – you know this this chapter seems essential for those working on contemporary Islam, but uh, I fear that many will, would not come across your work uh, in this way. So, can you maybe just uh, you know a couple of thoughts about uh, issues of audience and the types of interventions we make across perhaps our our limited subfields. Um, where does this type of cross-disciplinary work fit in the study of religion? How can we facilitate more of it? Uh, you do an excellent job, and I would love to see other people uh, kind of do this work. And I, I don't know uh, how, to, how to make that possible for people. Yeah,
1: well, thanks. Well, it, it is – there are several audiences that are certainly what's primary as I was writing, crafting the book. Scholars of religion, uh, s- scholars who are in black studies, African studies, who are in American studies – uh, there, So I, I do think that there, there are many people who will see the title of this book, African-American Religions, and one, they'll think it's a survey, especially when they see <laughs> when they see the, the periodization, 1500-2000. Well, this probably just surveys like 12 different religious movements. <laughs> <across> <laughs> and so, you know, they, so the subtitle is there, Colonialism, Doxian, Free. One person who read it said, well, you know, you could have put the subtitle first because and, and, it's it's not – I didn't want to merely refer – to colonialism. I actually wanted to work with colonialism. So there are some of the feedback I've gotten is that there are a lot of places in the book where it seems like I forgot about religion for the moment, and we're just talking about colonialism. Yeah, that's on purpose. I I think if you're going to write a book that engages in a serious way with colonialism, that you need to sit down with it and take it seriously. And so I don't think every page can be about religion. I think you have to explain some things first, and then develop it, and then show how this is intersecting with the religion. That's why the book is so long. It's it's, it's, it takes a, it takes a while to try to do those things, but I didn't want to refer to something and not actually explain it. Uh, so, there I actually hope that people who study empire will read this book. But as I said, you know, our knowledge is so chopped up now, and, and we are all in different areas. And if, we, if something doesn't sound like it's in our discipline, we already have so many other things to read that we probably won't read it. So, I do think there there are ways to address that. And I think what you're doing right now is a perfect example of that. But there are so many different media to use and technology is complicated and it's, you know, it's a mixed bag, but it certainly makes a lot of things possible that weren't possible before. And so you, because of what you're doing right now, a book can actually iterate, right? So you can have a podcast about it, you can have a blog about it, you can have journal roundtables, you can give talks. You can you can post things on Twitter and, and put something on Facebook. And people end up hearing about something through social media that they might not have thought they were interested in. And they just see a little tweet, or they get a little piece of something, or they see a blog about it. And they can read the blog, or they see the post. So I just want to thank you for what you're doing Yeah, I, I think this is exactly something that is technologically feasible that wasn't possible twenty years ago, or even ten years? How old is Twitter <laughs> ten years ago? So, so that's something that I think scholars have to take more seriously. Uh, I I'm someone who, who works in the digital humanities, and I I do. you are talking about new directions. So, some of my new, new directions are the more work on national security paradigms, but also machine learning, artificial intelligence, and human machine relations. And I would say this: we I think we have to stop sucking our teeth at that technology as if it's a nuisance or as if it's, it's not that serious. You know, there there's still I think there's still people around who refuse to use email. I remember there was a lot of that in the early 2000s. Uh, I okay, so maybe you're not the person to use the email, but then hire someone who knows how to. <laughs> because if, if you want, if we want to, uh, there are tools that we can use to over- overcome what have always been the limitations of our trade. And I think that if we're serious about addressing the constraints, we have some tools at our disposal. They're not magical. It's not like everything is perfect once we use them. But can we end up creating more discussions and can we end up reading people and talking to people, more people, than we would ordinarily encounter because of the technology? Absolutely. Uh, Because of these types of media forms, you, you can get the gist of something because you don't have time to read everything. You don't have time to read some of everything that's everything in your discipline, for example. But you can appreciate the intervention that people are making because of some of those these new media forms. So I think we have to do more of that.
0: Um, now, just to, before I let you get away, you, you mentioned a couple things about uh, maybe new paths that you're going in. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you're, you're finishing up now? I know there's some exciting stuff coming out and where you're heading in the future.
1: Yes, yeah, so I have a book that I've done with my colleague Stephen Weitzman called The FBI and Religion, A Faith in National Security Before and After 9-11. And that's coming out with the University of California Press in February. And so it examines, it's an edited volume that examines the history of the FBI's engagement with a range of different religious movements. Starting in 1917 until uh, roughly the, the present, certainly post 9-11 and it's the FBI's relationship with religious movements has been very very troubling and very complicated some of it surprisingly has not been all about repressing religious (laughs) movements the FBI has actually for many years is very interested in cultivating relationships with Mormons for example with Catholicism in order to promote national security interests It's, it's a fascinating past that we need to understand, and so that book is—it's as far as I know, and my my co-editor knows—is the first book to really demonstrate approximately a, a one century's worth of history of the FBI's engagement. And so we have fourteen contributors in that volume, and and we hope that it will reach a broad audience. We have we have some faint hopes that maybe people who are in the national security community will actually look at it and I don't know if, if anything will change because of it and I think that's probably uh, naive to hope that it would but maybe maybe can inform some of the policy making I think it certainly needs to be a greater part of what scholars are attending to because these national security paradigms are very important and and I don't think we should reduce the study of Islam to the study of how the FBI and how the, the state is engaging with, that, with Islam. Islam is much bigger than that. But unfortunately, I think for very troubling reasons, uh, there there certainly does need to be much more critical engagement with the politics of national security and and what I have been calling the racialization of Islam and uh, the, the rendering of Muslims as state enemies, because this is a very... Big prices that can that is already really troubling and and can become much worse. Uh, so the national security paradigm is is an area that I'm doing more work on. I also have begun work on machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence is usually the terminology that most people know to think about machine learning, and and not just the machines. This is engineering machines to especially to think and reason. We have centuries of tradition that have focused on the ability to think and reason as being at the center of what makes us human. And there are many traditions as well that would challenge that assertion. But that assertion is most certainly a dominant assertion. I will will say the dominant assertion. What happens when humans become increasingly successful at engineering machines? To think and reason, when we've been claiming that thinking and reasoning lie at the center of what it means to be human. That's something that we have to contend with. Uh, I, I can think of numerous examples here. Of one is that about a year ago, Google asked the federal government to recognize a self driving car, well, a, an autonomous vehicle, I should say, as a driver. And in the eyes of the federal government, only humans. Have ever been recognized as drivers never before has a machine been recognized as a driver but in february of this year of 2016 the federal government said in response to that inquiry absolutely they will recognize a machine as a driver now there are many reasons why the federal government would recognize a machine as a driver Uh, and and the quick answer is that the federal government is very committed to developing as as aggressively as possible increasingly intelligent machines, uh, particularly for military military applications, but also for healthcare interventions, uh, a number of applications. And, and so that's just one indication of how the ground is shifting in ways that most of us might not be thinking about in the day-to-day. But then there's also the, the question of human enhancement. So the Pentagon, since the 1960s, has dreamed, of, and, and not just dreamed, but has and at some level incrementally of combining humans with machines. And so since the early 2000s has been implanting electrodes into the brains of traumatically injured soldiers in order to provide therapy so that uh, people who have traumatic brain injury can do things like walk again, move their limbs, and even have restored cognitive capacities. But the Pentagon also wants to enhance perfectly normal humans with intelligent machine implants so that they can have superhuman capabilities for military applications. And this is not just going to be military applications. This will be all kinds of things. So uh, this is basically a, a ground shifting development that will confront us with very challenging questions about what a human actually is. Like how enhanced do you have to be before people begin to question your humanity? And what happens when machines become so upscaled in their cognitive complexity that uh, either they or biological humans begin to assert the need to recognize their rights as persons? I think we're completely unprepared for this stuff, and it's happening very quickly. Uh, the, the pace of the R&D is is always accelerating. You know, it's moving forward faster. <laughs> the speed at which it's increasing is always speeding up. And so I think this is a, a very exciting but also uh, troubling development. I think it certainly requires tremendous intellectual energy to address. There's a lot of software engineering being done. I think there's not nearly as much principled and rigorous uh, ethical, cultural, theoretical analysis that's being done about the relationship between humans and machines. And so uh, that that is uh, the most recent area of my research that I've turned attention to, and so I'm also writing a book on that subject.
0: Wow. That's, that's some f- fascinating and slightly scary stuff there. Yeah. <laughs> good, good luck with that project, and uh, thanks for for writing this wonderful book and making the time to talk about it.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Christian. I've enjoyed talking with you.
0: That was my conversation with Sylvester Johnson about his wonderful new book, African-American Religions 1500 to 2000, Colonialism, Democracy, and Freedom, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Thanks again for listening to another episode of New Books in Religion.